Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 42 of Push Dose EMS, your monthly educational offering from the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I'm your host, Jeff Batchett, Clinical Education Manager for the county. Uh, joining me today on our list of usual suspects, I have uh, Chief uh, Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Happy to be here. Uh, EMS Division Director, Dan Podra. Welcome, Dan. Hi, Jeff. Uh, Assistant Medical Director, Dr. Tom Growley. Dr. Growley, welcome. Hey, glad to be here. And along with the Medical Direction Team, Joel Vallier. Joel, welcome. Hey, good morning, everyone. And we do have a special guest joining us for today's conversation, Dr. Jamie Jasty. Dr. Jasty, welcome. Hey, great to be here. I thank everybody for joining us here to record this podcast. And for all you listening out there in podcast land, welcome. As per usual, before we dive too heavily into our topic, we'll go through some updates. So any system updates, Dan? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Uh, just two quick things. Uh, one, thank you all to the system providers for uh, your participation in the Zoll study recently uh, with the AccuVent trial. Uh, what we're doing there is understanding uh, ventilation with patients in the setting of cardiac arrest. So thank you, everyone, for participating in that. Uh, we're still collecting the data and analyzing it, uh, and then as soon as we have the research findings, we'll let everyone know what the results of that study were. Um, in addition to that, uh, we're also, you should have noticed by now, if you have not filled out a patient care record recently, is that we have transitioned to the NEMSIS 3.5 uh, level of data reporting for the state and federal requirements. Um, that form and report continues to be a work in progress, so if you have any feedback to your EMS liaisons, uh, please let them know if anything is not working, and we will work as quickly as we can to resolve any issues. And uh, I think that's the biggest things. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Dan. And then a message from Medical Direction, Dr. Weston. All right. Thanks, Jeff. And thank you, everyone, uh, as always, for joining. Uh, first, I just want to echo Dan's appreciation for your contribution to the Zoll AccuVent study. Uh, as you know, these studies help to inform and improve not only our patient care here in Milwaukee County, uh, but they really have influence nationwide uh, and often even globally. So your work on research as well as your work in the field is greatly valued. Now, we have a lot of podcasts that focus on specific skills or specific guidelines or one disease pattern, but this one's a little bit different. It's about thinking. How do we approach a patient presentation and how does that thinking influence how we respond? Are we acting on instinct? or critical thinking. Now, both, as we'll learn, have their own advantages, and we'll explore how to better understand and ultimately control that thinking for the betterment of our patients. And we welcome Dr. Jamie Jasty. He's an emergency medicine faculty at MCW. Uh, and in a previous life, he helped to lead the logistics of many of our large-scale, impactful uh, research studies in the system, and now contributes as a faculty member, as well as doing research on this specific topic for the podcast. So. We're looking forward to a great discussion here. Thanks, and back to you, Jeff. Excellent, thank you, Dr. Weston. Uh, and to carry on that thought, so last month we took a look at you know choosing the right array for the right situation. Uh, as you're going through your simulations in the next couple of months, you'll start seeing some little deeper insights into our differential diagnosis processes and our clinical decision-making. So I think this is right on par with some of the ideas that we're trying to get across in the next few months here. So uh, without further ado, I will turn it over to our medical direction team and Dr. Jasty. Gentlemen, take it away. 
Great, thanks. So really for the first quarter of this year, we're putting a lot of focus in our education on critical thinking and decision making and EMS. Uh, we hope to lay a good foundation on this so that as we do more educational offerings in the future, we can keep uh, revisiting some of these core concepts and, and diving in uh, more, more deeply into them and how we can apply them to specific patients. Um, so today we're going to start with some of the basics on the fundamentals and how our brain works in order to make decisions. Um, you know, the way that I think about this is when you're in EMT school and paramedic school, before they teach you about COPD, they teach you about normal respiratory anatomy and physiology. You know, if we want to get into um, issues with the way that we make errors and how we make mistakes when we're trying to diagnose someone or decide how to provide treatment to them, we need a little bit of a baseline about how our brain works so that we can have a more deep understanding of where those errors come from and how we can try to avoid them. So Joel and I have a special guest, uh, Dr. Jamie Jasty, uh, who Dr. Weston already introduced a little bit. Um, but I'll uh, turn it over to Jamie to see if he has anything else he wants to add just about his uh, his background and interest in this topic. Thanks, uh, Dr. Drawley, and very excited to be here, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. So I'm an ED physician working at Freighter Hospital. I went to medical school here, completed residency here, and I'm essentially a lifer here. I've lived in Wisconsin pretty much all my life. And I'm also a dad, I have three wonderful kids. And I got interested in decision-making and psychology and, and metacognition and, and all the things we're about to talk to today. I think shortly after reading the book uh, by Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, after graduating medical school, and that kind of propelled uh, my interest uh, in this and, and definitely influenced uh, my residency and I know uh, I've worked a couple of shifts with you, Dr. Growey, and uh, we've, we've shared our interest and um, have actually used it on shift a couple of times as well. So excited to be here and talk about this topic. All right, Dr. Jasty, uh, I, from a personal standpoint, uh, I appreciate you being an MCW, fantastic to work with. Um, so Jamie, why don't you tell us a little bit about the differences between system one and system two thinking? Sure. So. The theory is that our brain has two modes of thought. So system one and system two. System one thinks fast and operates automatically, uh, intuitively, almost instinctively and effortlessly. And in doing so, system one allows us to make quick decisions and conclusions. It's almost like our gut reactions. And it is a, it's right a lot of the time but can be prone to biases or errors in thinking that we'll talk about later. System two is a system that thinks slow and deliberately, and it takes time to solve problems. It allows us to reason, to focus, to concentrate, and makes us less likely to jump to quick conclusions, but it does take a lot more effort. So those are the two systems, system one and system two. Well, I guess I'll I'll throw this question over to both you, Dr. Growey and Dr. Jasty. Um, can you give us some common examples of system one and system two thinking in real life? Sure. So system one, I use this morning uh, while driving my car that I take uh, the same route going to uh, and from my house to Freighter Hospital. And I really don't 
use my brain a whole lot while driving. It's almost instinctive and I'm not aware of every single turn that I'm making or consciously thinking about it. It just sort of, it happens. And that's just because I've been doing it pretty much every single day. And my mind is sort of used to reacting to, you know, certain stop signs or signals or things that I see. And it kind of happens effortlessly. Um, system two, I think I use, you know, if I'm filling out a complicated form or I'm learning a new skill or calculating a, a math problem, um, the, the, that's a couple examples of, of system two that I think. Uh, what about you, Tom? Yeah, I think that that one on driving to work is a great example. You know, um, you don't really think about it. You can do other things while you're driving to work. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not saying you should text and drive or that I text and drive, but you can think about your day. You can, uh, you know, listen to music while you're driving. But if you're doing true system two thinking, you know, like let's say that you're driving to work and you hit a closed road and now you got to really think about how you're going to get around this closed road. Um, you can't really focus on anything else except for that system two thinking. The way I think about it in EMS is a lot of times the biggest way that we probably use system one thinking is uh, when we look at somebody and we just say, are they sick or not sick? You know, you just kind of get that gut feel like, oh, this patient looks sick. You know, as you walk into the door and you're 10 feet away from them, you already kind of have some impression of, um, you know, how sick you think they may or may not be. Uh, right away. The other thing I think of is if I were to say to you, you know, I've got a 64-year-old uh, diabetic hypertensive smoker who's presenting with crushing chest pain that radiates to his arm, um, I bet you guys are thinking about the word uh, myocardial infarction, you know, before I even finish that sentence. So that, that's where system one, uh, we see that at play. But System two helps us kind of figure out the differences between the patients with chest pain that present and who's having a PE versus who's having ACS. You know, does that patient who might look sick on my initial impression, are they actually sick when I get all the information from them? Or in the patient that looks really well when I walk into the room, you know, once I get my set of vitals and ask them a couple of questions, you know, does the information put me in a different direction that, hey, something more serious is going on here? Well, at this point, I think a lot of us, especially in EMS, utilize system one thinking. So there has to be some perks to using the system one train of thought. But how do you think that leads us to making mistakes? Yeah, I think uh, it's a great point that you make, Joel, is that system one is definitely important. And there's definitely many immediate life altering decisions that if uh, we take a couple extra seconds to make, um, it can make make the difference between life and death. And, and certainly system one uh, is important, but I think it also uh, leads us to make mistakes, like you said. And the problem is, you know, thinking slow or using system two takes more work and time. Um, they've, they've done experiments where people who are leisurely walking will stop walking when they're asked to complete a difficult mental task. And that's because it takes extra effort and time. And human nature is to go down the path of least resistance and go and choose the, the easiest way or the quickest way of thinking. Um, so we're prone to use system one thinking and let it take over more impulsively, even during times when we probably should use system two. And this is even worse when we are tired, hungry, or mentally exhausted or stressed. Basically, 
pretty much every single shift in emergent care, right? So with system one, when we use it, we're more likely to be gullible, we're more easy to believe what's in front of us versus system two, um, which is in charge of critiquing or doubting or asking more questions. And the problem is system one can lead us to make mistakes um, and use and our brain kind of uses it to uh, simplify things and in do so can deviate and, and it's prone to biases. Two examples of biases that I think of, uh, one is confirmation bias. So our tendency to look for evidence that confirms what we already believe. So you go on scene to someone having shortness of breath, you listen to their lungs, you hear a wheeze, and you're like, yep, this is a COPD or asthma exacerbation, done. You know, slam dunk, I know what's going on. Um, but it turns out, you know, they not only have COPD, but they also have history of heart failure, and they're actually in acute decompensation and are just wheezing because they've got bad COPD, COPD lungs on top of it. So that's confirmation bias, looking for uh, confirming evidence of what we already believe. Another example is anchoring. So you receive a call of a young woman who's anxious and has chest pain. Um, so you hear that information uh, in the page or in the report prior to getting on scene. Um, and and uh, you see an anxious appearing and you focus on that piece of information, that anxious appearing woman, when in reality, that woman's anxiety is secondary to uh, very real symptoms uh, from a pulmonary embolism. So we anchor on certain information and focus on that when, and that can kind of blind us to looking at all the other pieces of information. So uh, those are two examples of biases that our brains are prone to uh, when we use system one thinking when we should be using system two. Yeah, and I think I think you did a good job, uh, Jamie. And I like how you highlighted that system one thinking like has a role. You know, uh, we couldn't do system two thinking all the time; it's exhausting. You know, I think about like when I've you know even walked into the work. Let's say it's like a nine a.m. shift, and the first thing of my day when I'm feeling you know nice and rested is like a big cardiac arrest that takes a lot of energy. And then an hour later, I'm all done with it, but I just feel mentally shot, you know, like that. that's how I used a lot of system two thinking. And and I wouldn't be able to work a whole shift, you know, just using system two thinking all the time. But, you know, finding the roles of each of these systems is really important to try to avoid error. You know, I think it's worth noting that we're all likely to make mistakes. Mistakes will happen, you know, and that's one of the reasons why we like to talk about this. You know, I, I can think of two big ways where I got burned by this. You know, one situation I was sitting in the trauma bay um, at Freightert, uh, not, you know, I think I think I was just working on some computer work and one of the security guard walks in with this patient that he wheeled in and just screams, he's been shot, you know, so everybody, everybody like runs, you know, we get him in a bed, we start assessing him, you know, we're looking him up and down, he's hypoxic, you know, and we ask the guy what's going on. And, and he's like, he's like, I wasn't shot. I was in a car accident. You know, he's got these uh, cuts on his body that, you know, retrospectively looked like uh, we're obviously not gunshot wounds. But again, we were in this system one mode of, you know, gunshot wounds. And, and all I kept thinking when the guy's like, I haven't been shot, you know, I don't know what you're talking about was, oh, man, this guy is so overwhelmed by what happened to him. He doesn't even realize that he's been shot, you know? Um, and me and two other physicians that were there were all suckered into this gunshot wound ideology until another physician who wasn't biased by that 
initial security guard came in and said, hey, what are you guys doing? Like, these are not gunshot wounds. You know, actually look at them and talk to the patient. It's clear that he he was not, you know, he was not shot. It was just broken glass that had cut him. You know, and then the uh, the sick for sick uh, piece, you know, I, I definitely learned this lesson where I had a patient that looked very not sick and he had a couple risk factors for endocarditis or a, a blood infection uh, that, you know, kind of originates on the heart. But I just kept telling myself, he looks really healthy. He looks good. I don't think this is going on. Um, you know, and I ultimately ended up discharging the guy when that was the uh, the diagnosis that he had. And, and uh, you know, so there was some delay in treatment. And thankfully, you know, none of these individuals had any, any bad come of, uh, you know, these diagnostic errors that I made. But again, that like sick versus not sick system one thinking really burned me in that second case. And in that first case, it was just the emotion by which the security guard ran in, you know, that really convinced me that this was a gunshot wound, despite no other evidence to to support that. Yeah, a great example. And one example that I'll share kind of relates to that sick versus not sick uh, gut reaction. And I was at the VA and had a patient that came in uh, with some chest pain and they said they had accidentally swallowed a piece of plastic uh, that was on the cover of, of whatever food product that they were eating. And they were coming in uh, about two to three days after with continued chest discomfort. And I mean, this gentleman looked amazing. He looked, he was well appearing uh, with normal vitals. And so I essentially got uh, x-rays uh, because I was not expecting to see anything and, um, I didn't really put much thought into what question I really wanted to answer with ordering that imaging. I kind of just went with, you know, he looks well, so I have, you know, low suspicion that anything's going on. So I'm just going to get x-rays because that's sort of like the lowest imaging modality that we do, um, you know, especially if we're not concerned. Um, and then I signed out the patient um, with a plan to follow up those imaging. And thankfully, the next physician that I signed out to, uh, Dr. Eline, uh, based on and talking to the patient, he got a CT scan. Um, and that CT scan um, actually showed the retained plastic form body with a developing pretty large abscess uh, in the esophagus that was at risk of perforation. Oh. Uh, thankfully, this gentleman was admitted for IV antibiotics and got CT surgery consult. But if that patient goes home, he very quickly deteriorates and will uh, most likely die you know, before he even gets to the hospital. So in that situation, I kind of relied on he looks fine um, and let that affect my decision making versus, OK, what are what are this patient's risk factors? He's coming in two to three days after what questions am I really wanting to answer with imaging? You know, it wasn't a metal body that I'm looking to see if it's radiopaque on x-ray or not. So, you know, really the best test is going to be a CT. So I didn't really think about all those factors or put much thought. I kind of relied on sort of my gut reaction. Of, he looks fine. So here's what I'm going to do. And thankfully, um, you know, he's doing fine. But um, that's definitely a note example that comes to my mind of sort of sick versus not sick and, and using system one. That's a good one. Um I, I think one of the I have one that is pretty, I think, uh, good for EMS, but also for ED providers as well. But I mean, it's probably one that we've all been in is the uh, little old lady with Alzheimer's dementia that fell uh, when 
someone comes in with a, a fall, perhaps even an externally rotated hip, and you ask them what's going on, like, oh, honey, I just fell, my hip hurts, and that's all that you're going on. Uh, she seems to be perhaps even lucid at the time that you see her. She's answering all your questions right. You just fell, nothing happened, you weren't dizzy, no, nothing like that. Uh, I just fell, honey, just don't, I just hurt my hip, it's okay. And then uh, just a little more background history, you kind of just call the nursing home where they're at and you're like, oh no, she hasn't eaten or drank for a week and she's not even making urine. She's not even able to walk, she's so weak. And so you start having to go down the pathway of doing far more workup for this patient than you would just from the outside of uh, thinking that's probably just a hip fracture and there's nothing more that needs to be done. But um, this patient probably is uh, probably pretty sick. Um, so I think, I'm hoping that's applicable to um, a lot of our EMS providers that uh, come in with hip fractures. Yeah, I think falls in general are just a really great, um, great topic. And we could have a whole other podcast about diagnostic errors and falls and lift assists and, you know, how you're just kind of set up to make this system one, system two error when the dispatch information calls you and says, hey, they just need to go to this lift assist patient. And then you walk in and the patient says, oh, I'm fine, you know, just pick me off the ground. Um, you know, very easy to look at that and say, oh, this person looks well, there's nothing going on. But uh, using that system two thinking to really get to why did this patient fall? How did they end up on the ground is how you're going to do really good uh, for, for these patients. So that, that's a really great example, Joel. So, so kind of thinking about, you know, these, and I think the thing that kind of gets highlighted from the cases that we pointed out, if I look at common themes, was that we didn't really know we were making the mistake as we were making it, you know, otherwise we wouldn't have made the mistake, right? So it's hard to, it's hard to turn off that system one thinking and kind of force yourself to use system two thinking, because again, your body, your brain is trying to go through that path of least resistance. So uh, I think the best thing that we can really do is is try to identify situations where we're very likely to make a mistake in system one thinking. Like where are situations where we know that we can't trust system one thinking? We have to kind of force ourselves to think think a little bit harder about these about situations uh, about these specific patients in front of us. So. Joel, Jamie, can you uh, can you highlight a couple couple situations where we maybe need to make sure that we're using our system two thinking and in, in addressing these? Sure. So one of the ways, and this is certainly I'm I'm relatively young in my physician uh, career and experience, and so I'm still learning how I can uh, get better at this. But one of the ways that I've used this on shift is towards the back end of my shift. I know that. I'm more tired, fatigued, and um, kind of sick of, of making decisions and, and putting a lot of thought into decisions. And I'm more likely to uh, revert to system one thinking and kind of go off of pattern recognition and gut reaction. And so often I will, towards the end of the shift, just make a conscious effort to, to step back at each patient and, and then ask myself, okay, am I doing this because you you know I, I want to simplify what needs to be done, or I want just tired and wanting to to end the shift, and I kind of take a moment to think and step back for each patient and make sure that I think in my brain that my decision making isn't being influenced by sort of the factors of being close to shift, being tired, 
and that's one of the ways that I kind of regularly on each of my shifts step back and, and try to think about this. But that's everybody, right? I don't think this is just limited to ER providers or even just EMS personnel in general. I think this it's pretty much uh, uh, anyone with a pulse. If you're at the end of your shift, uh, you're probably not using all of your brain power that you probably could. Am I right? Yeah, exactly. I think we're all prone to this, and then even more so in our uh, as healthcare professionals in emergency care, where uh, we have a very stressful job and um, very physically demanding. And certainly towards the end, I think is one way we can kind of take a pause to think about our thinking and think about whether you know we've been entrusted with a very a challenging but rewarding responsibility to to try to figure out if people in front of us, uh, the patients, have something life-threatening going on and how to best help them. And part of rising to that challenge is making sure that us as humans aren't um, being influenced or, you know, our decision-making isn't being affected by a lot of these errors that we're prone to making. And I think as we get towards the end of the shift, being more cognizant and taking more time to step back and think about the factors influence our decision making um, is one way to sort of address this and and overcome uh, just relying on system one thinking. Yeah, fully agreed. One thing I just wanted to add on that that's a great point is like these aren't meant to say like oh it's an excuse that it's okay because it's the end of my shift and I'm tired I'm going to make mistakes like you know obviously we all recognize that we will make mistakes this will happen but these aren't excuses why it's okay you know we still we're really challenged like dr jesse had said to make sure that we find a way that works for us to kind of rise to the occasion and overcome these barriers that that we have to uh face so very valid points um an another one that i think has a lot of merit in this discussion is non-transports um, so these are kind of the the ones out on scene that require actually complex discussions between uh, you and the patient to have the informed conversation of risks of declining transport. Uh, we've all had the little old person that calls for the chest pain and said, oh, you know, EKG looks fine. I'm not having chest pain right now. I don't really want to go to the hospital. And in the ER, it's kind of the same thing, right? So, I mean, we have the little old person like, oh, I don't really want to stay. I have to go home, take care of my dog. I have to pick up my friend from the airport, you know, whatever it may be. But they're entitled to do whatever they want. But the idea is they have a concern for chest pain. That's why they came in. That's why they called you. Remember that we always would recommend transport to the hospital via ambulance because they did call for a concerning chest pain problem, despite what they're saying now, but there appears to be a, a need for appreciation for what the differential diagnosis is to properly inform patients of their risks. So perhaps they do have underlying CAD, two stents, congestive heart failure, hyperlipidemia, and obesity, and they're calling for chest pain and like, ah, I don't really want to go. And that's fine, but you should at least tell them, well, if everything looks okay now, I can't see inside of your heart. I can't tell you what's going on. I don't have all the information. I think we probably should transfer you to the hospital. That would be our recommendation. We are concerned. So again, this is one of the, uh, I think, as you discussed, Dr. Grouty. So I think looking at the sick versus not sick, you look fine, but it's fine to go by private vehicle. You should go by us. But um, the idea is transport via the ambulance, which is why you called. That's why we should go to the hospital. 
And this is also a good segue into um, turndowns. So um, initially, you don't have a lot of time with the patients. You know, you're looking at them, not particularly sick appearing. They can go by uh, different private vehicle service. I think one of the things that needs to be considered is just think about the differential for why this patient is calling. So, I mean, again, let's go back to the chest pain argument. So, I mean, calling for chest pain, I feel okay right now. It's not as bad as what it was. Start thinking about the the likelihood of decompensation and you as an EMS provider, paramedic, and what you can do to treat and manage it. So we don't have all the tools in the field to look for all the lethal problems for chest pain. So transport should be the obvious recommendation, but also does this, does this person need ALS or not? Um, and I think that it should be stuck in the back of the head more often than not. Yeah, I completely agree, Joel. I think another example that comes to mind is our high utilizer uh, patients uh, that, that use the system often. And we've all seen these patients numerous times and kind of fall into sort of pattern recognition. And most of the time, maybe they don't have a life-threatening issue and it's an easy fix, but uh, sometimes it's not. And sometimes it, they, the very factors that lead them to be high utilizers also make them at high risk for a life-threatening condition. And so it's one example where, you know, it'd be important to take a step back and say, hey, I know I've seen this patient numerous times, you know, is there something else going on and kind of engaging our system to and our brain to think about uh, the differential and our decision making and reasoning for maybe why this is kind of an easy issue or is there something else going on and triggering us to think about that? I have to admit, uh, all these are fantastic points and stuff that we encounter almost every single time we're on shift. So overall, fantastic. Jamie, can you outline some of our take-home points for the listeners as a recap? Sure. So our brain has two modes of thinking. System one, which is fast, operates instinctively and effortlessly, and really allows us to quickly recognize patterns and make quick decisions or conclusions. System two is slow, but it requires more effort and allows us to focus, be more skeptical, and solve complex problems. Both are essential to function as humans, um, but system one is more prone to errors, such as confirmation bias, where you hear a wheeze and then say the shortest of breath is COPD, or anchoring, where you hear about a young woman that's anxious, uh, that has chest pain uh, when she really has uh, pulmonary embolism. So at baseline, we as humans are more likely to use system one because it's easier and faster, but we tend to use it even more when we are tired or stressed. And as healthcare professionals in emergency medicine, uh, we have the difficult but rewarding challenge of trying to figure out who has an emergent health problem and how we can best help them. And since we often have to make these decisions quickly while under stress or fatigue, we are prone to using system one thinking to make these fast decisions uh, when maybe sometimes we should be using system two. And I think in order to give the best care and constantly improve our skills, I think it is important that we take a step back sometimes and really think about our thinking. Am I using system one when I should be using system two? Am I missing something? Am I at the end of the shift? Am I tired or being influenced by something? And do I really need to use system two in this situation? 
Yeah, Jamie, I think I think those are really uh, great, great points, and I love how you uh, you know how you summarized it. You know, system one thinking has a role, but there are many situations where we need to stop ourselves and make sure that we're using system two. So, big big thanks to you and Joel and everyone else for uh, coming out today to discuss this really important topic. And I look forward to how we can keep discussing this and integrating it in future trainings at OEM. Thanks everyone for having me on. Very excited and grateful for the opportunity to be here. Yes, thank you, Dr. Crowley and Joel for kind of leading us through that. And a special thanks to Dr. Jasty for taking time out of his, I'm sure, very busy day to join us for this podcast. So it's greatly appreciated. Some really awesome information there. Uh, and thank you to all of you that take the time to listen. Stay safe and we'll see you next month.